Hello, I see you've made it in from the other side. Exceedingly rare, but not unheard of. Welcome, traveler. I'm guessing from the wonder and terror in your eyes that it's your first time in the actuality. Savor it every moment while you remain here and bring its truths back with you. They may ultimately mean freedom for you or those you love. Oh, and stay safe. I have some tips for you, but first, what will you be drinking tonight? It's on the house. Welcome back to The Secret Cellar. It's so good to have you. Tonight's show is a bit different, a bit more intimate than previous shows. I think every person who's listening to this podcast understands at some level the transformative value of story to the human experience. I've talked with guests about many aspects of that topic, technical, political, artistic, but tonight we're going to get personal, even spiritual. We're talking tonight with Rich Howard, an author and podcaster and scientist and nurse, and one of the designers of Descent into Midnight, which you heard about in the previous episode. I did something no show host should ever do, which is invite a new friend on the show and then put them on the spot. But the gamble was worth it. Vizla's call. Rich Howard, it is such a pleasure to have you joining me in The Secret Cellar. Thank you for having me. I feel so comfortable here. It's like <laughs> I belong. I've been looking for The Secret Cellar my whole life. <laughs> Actually, The Secret Cellar has been looking for you. I'm glad to have facilitated <laughs> this connection. Uh, what, are you, what, are you, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking my standard uh, middle of the day, got to do house dadding beverage, which is... Uh, uh, lemonade and iced tea. In this particular case, uh, our lemon tree has not given us enough lemons to make my own lemonade, so I'm drinking something called Jing Tea. That's the name of the company, and it's a half and half premium tea and lemonade with cane sugar, and it is delicious. That sounds lovely. Dadding about the house is a thing I often do, so maybe I should uh, add that to my my repertoire. That's pretty good. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot going on right now. <laughs> it's busy day. Yeah, I try to keep caffeinated and moving. And here you are about to uh, solve all the world's mysteries in a podcast in the, middle, right. in the middle of your busy day. So thank you. I'm at work and this is my lunch break. And so I'm drinking, you know, iced coffee with cream and brown sugar. And uh, Ooh, brown sugar. Yeah. That sounds delicious. Yeah. It's like just just that little like a deep sweet, not like a not like a high tone sweet, but like a low sweet. It's really nice. Uh, you just. Okay. The secret seller has already blown my mind. I've been here like two and a half minutes. <laughs> a fantastic idea. I want to do that. So anyone who listened to the most recent episode of the secret seller in which I talked about me crying <laughs> during a game at Gen Con, um, is how I met you because you are one of the designers of that game. Yes. Yes. I do not apologize for the tears. <laughs> <laughs> for some background context, you know, anyone listening, go back and listen to that last episode. But I'm super excited to talk to you in person because um, story is a thing that you have apparently thought about a lot through your whole life. Yeah, pretty much, I would say, from the beginning of my existence. You, you have found yeah. the right seller then, my friend. Welcome. Outstanding. I said I've been looking for it my whole life or waiting for it my whole life. I'm not sure how to rephrase it now. I think it's worth mentioning just a little bit of context for, you know, the shtick of this show. I've harped a lot on the fact that this is a basement speakeasy in which Vizlay and the world of Invisible Sun travel to when they just want to get away from the magic for a bit. But what I've talked about less and which will be relevant today is the fact that this is also a place where normal nons from the gray people who aren't wizards um you know they they come here to this basement to try to maybe transcend maybe touch a higher truth maybe uh get in touch with something bigger than themselves and that is often through the magic of story so that is uh the the larger context for why uh for some of the things i want to talk to you about today so i am so ready for this <laughs> overly ready so um 
we were giggling because in an email I was like, oh, this is easy. Come on my show and answer just a few simple questions like, what is the broader context of everything that story means for the human experience? But specifically, what I want to ask you is, uh, I overheard you talking on another podcast about the fact that you, you've been interested in stories through your entire life, but then as you've kind of grown and become a more complete human, you've figured out um, kind of your own personal spirituality. And it sounds like story has uh, has meant something in terms of that. So this is a, a, a personal question, answer as much or a little as you want, but what what has storytelling or story receiving meant to you in terms of coming to an understanding of your own spirituality and how you see the world working? Well, um, I'm glad you opened up with a nice, um, simple warm up uh, question. Softball question. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, <laughs> so, I guess a little explanation. So, I grew up in a uh, relatively small town in Kentucky. I have a deep seated spirituality that I now know or understand. It could be described as shamanic sure. in origin, um, though, though that word is. Um, it does not mean what you think it means. Basically, it applies to 10, 100,000 different spiritual beliefs around the world. So to say that it's shamanic in origin is a real vague term that's frustrating to use, but it's the only one that applies. I'm going to preface this for a little bit. Sure. Um, my spirituality did not go over well in my small town. And I didn't understand what it was because I had no one there mm -hmm. to explain to me what it was that I was experiencing or feeling. Sure. Um, so I don't talk about this. I just don't talk about it very much. And um, over the past year, year and a half, I have tried to become more open about discussing it, which is one of the reasons why I was honored to be welcomed on your show about now. My wife and I are both members of uh, Native American church uh, that are here in the United States, but I think it's an international church as well. Um, we attend ceremony with friends and, and that kind of thing. But I am a middle-aged straight white man uh, from an upper middle class. So talking about being this person as having a shamanic spirituality sometimes leads me into conversations I don't really want to have. I feel like my job right now as, you know, this cis head white male uh, is to shut up and listen mm -hmm. um, when people have things to say about the way that they were treated and, and the way that things need to change. And that's my job, and I'm going to do that. Um, but I am not going to give up what it is that I grew up believing before I knew that there was a belief to be had. Mm -hmm. um, the whole discussion of shamanism as a personal spirituality is interesting because, you know, eventually spiritualities get turned into religions and they become institutionalized and they, they become very codified over sort of the course of history. Yes. But it sounds like, in a sense, shamanism in this context refers to. Um, something approaching a, a a very deeply shared human experience across the world, you know, before those forces get applied to it, in a sense, maybe. Yes. So the word shamanism is so generically broad; it's almost a worthless term. Sure. Um, for example, Jesus's forty days in the desert is shaman. It, it's a classic shamanic journey. Sure. They the the removing yourself or the detaching or yourself from aspects of daily life and including things like food and water to detach yourself from these patterns and these things in your mind to be able to access parts of your mind and your soul and your spirit that you could not before because you're so caught up it's this concept of a, a shaman you know a shaman classically lives in the community but is not mm -hmm. of the community sure right? They may live out somewhere else and people think, well, what do they know, right? Same thing with like, say, a Catholic priest, like this person has never been married and won't be married. How can they give me advice on my marriage? Well, mm -hmm. they can give you advice because they're not caught up in the emotional stories that are so fundamental to you not being able to see the through line of what the problem is. Sure. And that shamanism ability to be able to step away and to look or a Buddhist monk ability to step away and to look to detach from these things that get us caught up in stories that that are illusions over what may or may not be happening. Um, all of that is very can all of that can be looked at as a shamanic viewpoint. Therefore, the word shamanism almost becomes uh, not unhelpful. Yeah. Um, sure. 
but there's a there's a general social kind of view of it as basically applying to any kind of animistic religion in which there are spirits in lots of things. Sure. Um, and those spirits can be awakened or spoken to or approached or, you know, and including a, a great spirit, you know, um, ancestor spirits, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just different. Um, when you take those and you codify them and you write them down in a book or something like that in my, for me, for me, shamanism, or what you say spirituality is an experience is experiential. It is yours. It is what do you experience? What do you feel? And when you when you feel that and then you find a, an organized religion with a community or a, a group of people that feel similar things, then I think that's a really great great thing. Um over time, and this is again my personal you know, like viewpoint, over time when it becomes too codified, then you become going, you, you start going to the codification in which to feel the, the experience instead of feeling the experience and then checking and looking at what the codification to see if any of that sits with you. Does that make sense? Yes, I see what you're saying. Well, musical notation, right, is like one sort of parallel. Like you can take any, you can sit and you can create beautiful music on an instrument. Yes. And then there is a way to go and take that and like write it down. But right. if you give that same piece of encoded music to uh, one person who imparts no soul into it when they play it back, <laughs> or another person who knows how to interpret it and build on that, you can sense it when you listen to it. You know what you feel with that music. Yes, you are technically right. playing the notes, right. but you're not feeling the music. All of that has to do with story. Every single piece of it has to do with your story, how you interpret it, how you're able to communicate it, how someone else is able to receive it through their own filters, how they interpret it for their experience. And their experience may be very, very different than yours, even though they have had some kind of uh, a spiritual or transformative sure. experience. So um, this is is all to be said to lay groundwork. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up with a very powerful imagination and still have one. And having a powerful imagination like that and not having someone uh, around me to be able to try to explain these things that I felt were very spiritual experiences. I, I spent a lot of time as a child going to different churches in my tiny town. Uh, and none of them were quite hitting the nail on the head mm -hmm. uh, for me. And, and in some cases, um, basically made me feel like I was uh, evil. Mm. So that was not a I, it was, this was also during the satanic panic, so I was kind of getting hit from both sides playing TV as well. <laughs> um, I didn't understand what my spirituality was telling me uh, until I got to college. So I was in my early 20s, and I'd moved out of that town, and I'd moved to UC Santa Cruz, where I got my first degree in marine biology. And I'd met a friend of mine who is a black Seminole Indian. He and I, he invited me into the band that he was in. And he and I became uh, friends. And as I was describing to him about how I see things or feel things or um, the way I communicate with the world and animals, uh, in particular, he is, had a shocked look on his face and just looked me right in the face and said, are you sure you don't have any Native American blood in you? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Hmm. Because this was basically one of the first times I'd ever been exposed to the fact that there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of religions around the world, including Shinto and other things that believe in sure. or, or interact with spirits in objects and people and, and animals. Uh, and that's when he started to explain to me what his viewpoint from his culture was um, in explaining the connections that I was having. Um, and it was the first time. Sorry. No worries. <clears throat> Uh, it was the first time in my life I didn't feel afraid. Mm. So, um, so when I got to college and started to understand a little bit more about what was going on and and what I, uh, getting some insight from my dear friend and mentor, um, then I started understanding and recognizing other things, um, particularly about story. Um, I'm co-host of a podcast called Whelm the Young Justice Files, where we analyze um, the DC animated series Young Justice. Um, and one of the guests that we had on the show was Crispin Freeman, who's a voice actor from the show, but he also happens to be a mythology cool. scholar. And so he, he came on and talked uh, about two hours on comparative Eastern and Western mythology and, 
And that was one of the first times I'd started to open up about these concepts because one of the things that he espouses, which is a which echoes something from my studies as well, is this idea that we are the stories that we tell ourselves. We sometimes believe ourselves to be a particular thing, or we repeat a particular thing about ourselves on a day-to-day basis. I am not an artist. I uh, have a terrible sense of direction. I am an ugly person, right? Or whatever it happens to be, we become those things in our mind when they're not necessarily true in any way. We each carry a construct of ourselves and of other people in our minds, and none of those constructs look the same. And those stories that we tell ourselves are powerful and Mm -hmm. life-changing. And so when you ask me, (laughs) basically, quote-unquote, narrowed the question down to the idea of what transformative role does story play in the human experience, this is what I'm talking about. Your understanding that you have an imagination and that you can control this imagination and be aware of this thing that you're doing either to yourself or to other people can transform everything. We talk about story being magical and that I can, I can write, uh, write a story, a short story, and then at least now living in the future, I can write a story and maybe literally as I'm writing it, someone across the world can have emotions well up in them. That's magic to me. Uh, yes. And we talk about that external emphasis of magic quite often, but sometimes I, I feel like we don't spend enough time talking about that internal application of that kind of same magic to ourselves. I can affect something that I can, I can in, invoke images or evoke feelings in someone uh, thousands of miles away, but I do that to myself every day. And I, I just assume that's part of who I am instead of learning to control those internal stories or choosing to believe or not believe or accept and not accept um, out of choice. Um, part Part of my shamanic work that I did for many, many years, which was very intense and hard and frustrating and continues, is tearing myself down to my fundamental bits and then looking at the things very closely about what was mine and what was I carrying around that someone gave to me that I chose to accept and carry with me. Mm-hmm. What do I believe as opposed to what does someone else believe that I am now parroting? Mm-hmm. Um, to do that can be very scary when you're an uh, insecure extrovert as I was and defined myself by the way other people saw me, um, tearing myself down and ripping those things out and then taking a look at them and then building myself back up again um, was terrifying. Uh, and one of, my, uh, one of my mentors for many years, um, I came to him crying because I felt destroyed and I was scared. And he asked me what was wrong and I said, I am tearing all of these things, these bits and pieces of myself down and I don't know, uh, I'm terrified. I don't understand what I'm going to become. And he said, well, what do you think you will be when you remove all of these stories? Oof. And I said, nothing. I'll be nothing. <clears throat> <clears throat> and he said, you'll be everything. <clears throat> And it turned my head upside down. It started me on the path to realizing that I felt like I would be nothing because my self-definition was based on what other people believed of me. Instead of tearing myself out of this cage Mm -hmm. and being able to make the definition of myself, remake myself into literally anything that I wanted to make. And, but do it with mm-hmm. um, intention instead of just being handed things. And all of that is entirely based on the stories that others and, and we tell to ourselves. So you have gotten your revenge on me because I had the audacity to ask that question and now I have to parse all of it. But I want to repeat back a couple of things I heard and kind of draw, draw some threads <laughs> out of it. And first of all, fair. Um, thank you like it's it's really um you know there's a sense in which it's deeply personal to take that much of yourself and like you know condense and distill all of that and like pour it out on a stranger but uh i i appreciate that and i i want to 
dig into some parts of it related to this bigger question of story. In your kind of recapping of how you came to where you are right now, you mentioned two really distinct uh, experiences that were transformative, which in a sense are kind of opposite ends of a spectrum. One was a situation in which you had grown up with kind of all of this story and all of this thinking and this understanding, but felt very alone in it. And there was a moment where your friend was able to look at you and say like, oh, hey, actually, I I see this thing in you that I identify with. I recognize you in this place and you're part of something. This is a personal experience you are having. You're not the only one having this. And there is there is context for this that is bigger than you that came before you. And that sounds like it. Right. Uh, it was. Um, that that was the moment, my friend Malesh, who kind of opened my eyes to this, that could even be a possibility. Uh, and that speaking about that personal journey that I was on, I was not going to be punished for that. Yes. So here is... My question, the one extreme was this moment, like, oh, you actually are not alone. But then on the other extreme, you mentioned the time when you had realized that you were clinging so tightly to all the stories from others that were stuck to you, <laughs> that you, you thought maybe there would be nothing left. And instead, yeah. your friend was able to look at you and say, like, no, actually, with intention, pure potential, like that gap that is left can be anything Mm -hmm. it is so important for us to be able to to get to that core of our own experience and what really matters and what we really love and what really makes sense um but it's also important on some level if you're only ever alone in the desert and not communicating with anyone uh right there's possibly something lost there as well um so what is it in the core of all of this talk about story that serves these goals from your perspective of of making humans better able to see their own stories and then also uh, share, communicate, connect across that gap to other people? Um, to me, story is the single most powerful aspect of human existence. Bam! And that's a... It's a bold statement to say. We are the animal that tells stories. Mm-hmm. That is what we do. Gotcha. When I when I was growing up, I you know it's like oh we're the we're the animal that that uses tools. <laughs> well, that's garbage. There's tools yep. for miles out there, right? We're the only animal who communicates. Well, that's also garbage. That doesn't make any sense, right? Um, we're the only ones who can teach each other. Um, well, that's also garbage. So none of this is none of this is actually truth. Um, but the one who tells and constructs stories I can sit with. Mm. That's who we are. Mm. We can influence each other. And I think that's become very, very evident. <laughs> yes. Um, if it wasn't already yes. over the past few years about how someone believes something so strongly and states it adamantly, then it feels like it is true mm. when that is not necessarily the case. So, because of that and the effect that it can have on someone, to me, story is everything. Um, I, yeah, I, I play role-playing games so that I can get into my own emotions and connect with my friends and, and I write stories and I, I you know, do a, a, a smattering of voice acting on the side when I can find it for audio dramas or whatever I can get because, because it's another aspect of the shamanic story here is um the concept of shape changing so shape changing is a basically a spiritual practice for me so role-playing games are more than just a story for me um Mm -hmm. participating in the story is part of it and turning myself really putting myself literally psychologically shape changing myself Mm -hmm. into this character or this person or in the case of our game some alien creature on another planet that's in no way human stretches my boundaries and gives me perspective on things that I could not otherwise for myself um, if I was not doing it with intention. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, I, I don't know anything else that is more powerful, more transformative, more influential, more connecting than story in the human experience. I mean, yeah, people light up when they uh, 
have deeply experienced a story, whether that is, you know, retelling something that happened in their own life that they're telling later and that they have, uh, you know, that has become sort of tinged with mythology in their mind. <laughs> you know, I have stories like this from my life, um, whether they're, uh, whether they've just come from reading an incredible novel or watching an amazing movie that was well-crafted and connected with them in certain ways, um, whether they're telling something that they've heard from someone beloved to them that, you know, was an experience that person had. Um, there is some part of us which just absolutely comes alive in this. And it, it seems as though maybe in modern Western life, uh, that's something of a lost art. I think communal storytelling, people get lost in a movie or they get lost in a book. But to actually be in a situation where you are right. together yeah. creating something and transforming yourself by putting yourself in the mind and shoes of an entirely different person than you are <laughs> is something that I, I think right. historically for humans, storytelling played a larger communal role and um, just maybe because of the march of technology and whatever else, I think we've tended to take story into our own little kind of isolated pods. And that for me, discovering it wasn't until college really that I played role-playing games and had uh, a little broader context for what story meant to me at that point in my life. Um, but then this kind of gets back to your comments about our shamanic figure being kind of from outside the community. Like I learned things about myself that I think I literally could not have learned about myself if I was not thinking from another person's perspective, <laughs> because I was yes. always only ever in my own head. And maybe until that point, at least in a community setting, had only ever been in my head and something about being in someone else's mind right. in a creative community was really, it, it opened up some new parts of me. And, and so I think that that's part of where people who have known this, um, get so excited about it and want to share it with other people and invite people into it. So yes, Games and stories can transform our lives personally, but I'd like to tell you about a way that they can make larger change as well. I'm so happy to invite back to the show as a sponsor, Gamers Giving. Gamers Giving is a 501c3 charity made by gamers for gamers in need. Gamers Giving takes note when someone from the gaming community experiences tragedy, a house burning down, or the onset of cancer, for example, and hosts events to raise money to make life just a little bit easier for them. There are several other wonderful charities that raise money from gaming events in order to help folks, but Gamers Giving is special because it focuses on building bonds within the gaming community by helping other gamers. I know that you'd donate an XP for a member of your party to re-roll. This is that, but IRL. Find the Gamers Giving community online at facebook.com gamersgiving and see how you can pitch in and support this weird, lovely family we're all a part of. I have, of course, included a link in the show notes. My heartfelt thanks to Gamers Giving, a charity by gamers for gamers. So here's a question. Story is so powerful in the human experience. Um, obviously, that can be, as you alluded to, wielded for, for good or evil ends. What does it mean to be a good steward of story? How do you, Rich Howard, are trying to make story a thing? a more prominent thing in the world, how do you do that with love and compassion and empathy and responsibility rather than in a way that is uh, taking people's will from them or controlling or any of the other bad things that can be done with story? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> that's, that's a great question. When we started Whelmed, um, one of one of the art editors uh, on the show, uh, Richard Cruz Landry, is also one of the co-designers on Descent into Midnight, who ran your game for you. True. He and I were chatting, and he was like, "Well, I love origami, and I love role playing <laughs> games." All right, I'm like, well, I was like, "Let's do this." Um, and it was on my birthday, I remember last year, and I sat him down on the couch with uh, J M Perkins. If any of you guys in the role playing game industry have not known J M Perkins, you should. He is a genius, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I sat them down on the couch and I, best birthday present ever. I literally watched them create a role-playing game using origami oh as a mechanic that's accessible gosh. to anyone. <laughs> Amazing. So that is what I want to do. You can take these things that you are passionate about in your heart and you can 
look at them, break them down, and use them as inspirations to talk about anything. We've talked about the use of linguistics and psychology mm. and storytelling on our show. We've talked about role-playing games on our show. We just had Dr. <laughs> Dr. Letamendi on. I just talked about um, Crispin Freeman coming on and talking about comparative Eastern and Western mythology. All of this from a show that was basically me going, holy <laughs> crap, this DC comic show is really good, and I am so happy right now. Well... It, you can take that whatever inspires you and bring it forth so that other people can share it. And there is a story that only you can tell. Only you have those experiences. I have a degree in nursing. I have a degree in marine biology. I have I worked as a veterinary nurse. I worked as a holistic health practitioner with my own business for years. I've, I've been a gamer since I was seven. So there are all of these things that not everybody has that combination of stuff. Well, when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do in the role-playing game industry, I didn't have a clue. I was in my 40s. Everybody was better than I was in my head. That was the story I told myself. Hmm. How was I supposed to compare to people like Monty Cook? Sure. You know, like, you know, Bruce Cordell and, and Shauna Germain and like all of these people who were like industry cornerstones, right? Um, Rob, Robin Laws. I'm like, what am I going to contribute to this thing that somebody hasn't already and I had said, you know what? I got this degree in marine biology. I've always been fascinated and never got enough aquatic adventuring in my life. I will do fifth edition and Pathfinder, you know, Dungeons and Dragons aquatic content. And I started doing that on my website. And that led me to a regular column called From the Depths on uh, Tribality. And then that led to podcasts talking about it. And then that led to, and that led to, and that led to. Um, until I got to this place where now I can take all of this, these years I spent studying storytelling and writing because I wanted to be a novelist and all the other things that I love and brought it to Whelmed and was able to combine those things in a unique way that, that maybe there are other people who could probably do it. But in this way that I've chosen to do it, I, I'm mm -hmm. the best one to do that because I'm created that venue for me to, in which to do it. What is so neat to me about what you just said is... <laughs> And so very much in keeping with some of the story you told me before about who you are and how you've come to be where you are. There is, on the one hand, a mm, arrogance is not the right word, but there's a confidence that comes from knowing mm -hmm. yourself and what you love and who you are and what you're capable of and being able to shed, you know, the bad untrue stories <laughs> and act out of this story of like, huh. Me, I, Rich Howard, I am actually <laughs> the perfect person to make this podcast. But there's also an incredible, uh, there's a benevolence and a compassion in that too, because, you know, you blossom because you make this thing in the way that only you can make it. If it is of good quality and good heart, other people come along and experience that. And that inspires them to then grow and blossom and become more the person they can be. And then they're inspired too make the thing that they can make that you can't make and it you know it's it's a virus in the best in, in the best possible yes. way and inspire and, and inspire someone else yes. to do the same thing the guests that come on to our discussions blow uh -huh. my mind every yes. time when guy i mean we had we started off we had darcy ross uh came on the show and because she was a brand new fan of young justice we talked about being a new fan of a material and not having a lot of history behind it when you first walk into it we had ishan uh, sherwood from the total party thrill podcast came on to talk about diversity in the show and then we had quinn wilson come on they were all fantastic and quinn wilson came on to, from uh, the swallows of the south podcast and started talking about the use of linguistics mm -hmm. And the expression of psychology as a breakdown of character development. And it was a two-hour episode that ah, cool. continues to rock people's worlds, including mine. It's just absolutely amazing. I want to enhance the thing that someone already is so that they can take those unique stories and they can bring them out so that other people can hear it. Because when you start to do that, particularly now, again, living in the future, there's definitely you know a bit of... He'd use the phrase, but there's definitely a bit of evil about the internet, but it can be used for good. And in some cases, it's connecting you with a, with a group of people that can understand you. And in my particular case, uh, the role-playing game industry, getting into podcasting, and my very first interview was on a podcast called The Dungeon Master's Block, where I, I wrote them and I said, hey, I have this column on Tribality. Would you guys be interested in talking about aquatic gaming? And they were like, oh, yes, yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah, sure. Come on in. And so I came on and partway through Mitch, one of the hosts was like, 
okay, I just thought you liked playing games under like <laughs> underwater. I didn't realize we were going to school. Like, I didn't know you had a degree in marine biology. He's like, this is crazy. Um, and so that kind of made me feel like, wait, there's people who want to hear what it is that I have to say. And then I got invited on some other podcasts and I just kept participating. And that's basically what I tell people. People ask me, how do you get into the gaming industry or how do you get involved in this stuff? And I'm like, just participate, participate from a mm-hmm. position of supporting yourself and other people, support other people, be your genuine self and try to support people who are doing the things that you love instead of just spending a lot of energy yelling about the things you don't so that the pe- other people can hear you say, oh, this thing was inspirational to me and involved X. And somebody says, I like X, maybe I'll listen to it. And then suddenly that creator has more money to be able to make more stuff that you like. <laughs> The reason that I started this thing um, was just, I am done only just ever consuming and I need to be making something from the perspective that I can offer. And the most exciting thing about that is that in that process, I've ended up doing this and being able to sit with just fascinating people (laughs) who blow my mind um, to talk about the the place that they're coming from. And it's, it's ended up just being such a such a delight and joy and there's been a bit of community that's sprung up around it um and i'm i'm really it's really affirming to me just to hear kind of through your practical process there's the the kind of internal process of understanding yourself but at some point then deciding how to shape your life as a result of that in a way that you can uh create in a way that you can then share that with others and then also listen and put yourself in the path of other brilliant people doing other things where it's time to just shut up and be in awe of them. All of that together uh, is, uh, ah, it's exciting. And that's a life that I want more of. <laughs> um, and so, it, so it's, it's affirming to think um, of, of ways in which that's, uh, yeah, you know, a thing that can be done. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It's a journey, not a destination. And I know it sounds cliche, but it really is. I mean, Three years ago, I found myself in a job um, that I did not take with solid intention, and that job and I did not do well, and I had a heart attack. I ended up being okay, and and that's okay, but it was definitely a a moment of like, this is, I can't do this anymore. I'm giving myself to a thing Mm -hmm. I did not necessarily, like, I chose it. I have to accept the fact that I made this choice to do this job. Um... I quit that job. I got another job. I work hospice. I'm a hospice nurse. Um, and I drive to people's houses and take care of their families and take Mm, care of patients. And I am ecstatically happy with that job and I get to spend more time with my family. But that it wasn't till then that other things started to open up. Uh, Whelmed started after that descent into midnight. (laughs) Um, you know, and, and it in and of itself, this descent into midnight is an expression of cooperative storytelling Um, we have designed Descent into Midnight to hopefully evoke those feelings that in, in lots of different groups that you expressed on your podcast by having a truly unique combined experience amongst the people at the table that cannot be recreated by any other group of people in exactly the same way, which hopefully draws you in emotionally to this unique thing that you have created. We all have whatever perspective we are (laughs) trained in and carry the knowledge around with us. You know, so as a designer, this is what I do is I just sort of drift through life, seeing all of the things around me and what their effect is. And then like reverse engineering that and thinking backward, like, oh, well, this is a really effective thing. How did it come to be so effective? And like, what are the decisions that went into this that make it effective or not effective or whatever? And, um, and so that's why separate right, from the right. kind of emotional experience I was having, it was so interesting to me from kind of a systems perspective to be observing a situation arrive, arising, you know, exactly as you just stated, this group of strangers who were meeting for the first time, mostly uh, sitting in a noisy environment at the end of a long convention where we were all exhausted and yet being rapidly brought together to create this very unique and kind of beautiful moment and then i had a you know similar conversation with another friend who played at a different table had a totally different experience but similar on some of those same notes (laughs) um and uh you know and that that speaks to intention that has gone into the design of something and so that's it's it's really neat hearing you talk about what your what your team's goals were for that and uh 
and all the work behind the scenes that has obviously gone into figuring that out and working to a point where you can put people who are willing in this situation and then kind of expect them to have this uh, really unique creative truly collaborative experience together uh and, and i it it speaks to the power of yeah. game design and story design <laughs> that this is the kind of art that yeah you know that game design can be is is setting out to create uh live real vivid beautiful moments among people uh i don't know it's it's super exciting <laughs> Well, I have my entire life from the moment I discovered role playing games um, has become inspired by this particular thing, um, this window into the human condition and and non human condition. Um, and if I can offer anything back to that community um, in, to say thank you for the way that it's inspired my entire life. Um, then I'll be very grateful for that. Very good. Thank you again so much for stopping by to pay a visit. And uh, really, really nice having a conversation with you. And I'm hoping for more of that, you know, in front of a microphone or not at some point in the future. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. And uh, thank you for being so, uh, so welcoming um, to this, uh, what, has, what has been a, sometimes a hard conversation for me in the past. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Rich. Bye-bye. Ooh. My mind is still reeling from that conversation with Rich. I'm so grateful for his time, but much more so for his vulnerability and for trusting me, a relative stranger, with his heart. Notions are precious in this economy, but true stories shared are priceless. You should absolutely follow him on Twitter at Umbral Walker. His podcast is Whelmed the Young Justice Files, and you can read more about Descent into Midnight at descentintomidnight.com. Now, how about something different? A nerdy palate cleanser from the world of Invisible Sun. If you've not yet heard the most recent Incantations podcast, you should pause this one right now and duck over there and listen to Scott and Dave talk about the Sooth deck. I've been loving the new format of their show, which, now that the Black Cube has manifested, has them digging in deep to details of the mechanics and the world of Invisible Sun. They give a great overview of what the Sooth deck is, and what it means to Vizlay under any sun. But do come back, I'll stamp your hand, because I have a few super crunchy bits to talk about. The segments pair nicely together. As I've spent more time playing Invisible Sun, I've become more familiar with the Sooth deck, both in the practice of kind of using it and feeling my way through it for storytelling purposes, but also a bit more familiar with the mechanics. I finally took a few minutes to just sit down and understand the structure of the Sooth deck. And there's a few secrets to be found within. The Sooth deck comprises 60 cards, broken into four families of 15 cards each. These are secrets, mysteries, visions, and notions, and each family is also keyed to one of the four possible character hearts in the game. Within the Sooth deck, there are 24 royalty cards, which leaves 36 non-royalty cards. These form a sort of major and minor arcana of sorts. The royalty cards, when drawn, provide specific mechanical effects. The other minor cards just affect the enhancement or diminishment of magic. I'll talk about each of those a bit more in a moment. But this means that within each suit, or family of 15 cards, there are six royalty, one of each of the six types, and nine remaining. That's significant, we'll come back to that in a moment. Let's talk about the royalty cards. There are six types, the nemesis, always numbered zero, the apprentice, always numbered five, the companion, six, the adept, seven, the defender, eight, and the sovereign, nine. Within these six, there are two cards that benefit, two which harm, and two which are kind of meta cards. The Nemesis card negatively affects whichever character's heart is drawn at the moment, but also affects everyone at the table negatively. The Apprentice card slightly negatively affects the person whose heart is drawn. The Companion and the Adept both change the way that magic flows on the Path of Suns, which may cause help or harm depending on the situation or nothing at all. The Defender and the Sovereign 
both benefit. Defender helps the person whose current heart is drawn, and the Sovereign benefits everybody. It's worth noting that unlike a standard deck of playing cards, the numbers are not keyed uniquely. It is possible, for example, to have two zero of notions cards in the game. What is unique is the fact that within each family you will only ever have one functional card. So all nemeses in the game have a number of zero, but not all zeros in the game are necessarily a nemesis. After the royalty, of course, you're left with nine minor cards per family. Nine is a significant number in Visible Sun, not least because there are nine suns on the Path of Suns, and in fact each card remaining boosts a different color of magic within the game. In most cases, a card which enhances one particular color of magic also diminishes another, and these always follow set patterns as well. If you look at the Path of Suns as a line and kind of bracket it, starting with the suns on either end, silver on one end of the Path of Suns is always paired against gold on the opposite extreme, and then moving inward, green and pale, blue and red, and indigo and gray. So any card that enhances silver magic is always going to diminish gold magic. These pairings make sense thematically as well. Silver is the sun of beginnings from nothing. Gold is the sun of transformation and change, new beginnings through rebirth or grace. Green is the sun of life and movement and quickening, and pale is the sun of death and decay. Blue, the sun of the mind, qualia, consciousness, dream, and red very much the sun of physicality, violence, brute force, destruction, indigo, and gray at the very center around which everything else orbits, the colors, of course, of light and shadow, truth and lie. So this means that every numbered card in the game has six copies of it. So there are six cards numbered nine, for example. Four of those, of course, are the sovereigns of the four different suits, and then two remain as kind of filler cards. Interestingly, visions and notions duplicate their even cards within the stack to come up with these filler cards, while secrets and mysteries duplicate their odd cards. There's a few other miscellaneous comments to note. Within each family, there is a companion card, always the card numbered six, and that companion card features the artwork of the animal associated with that suit. So cats, for example, or ravens. There's also a location card. This isn't as immediately obvious. But the location card is always drawn from the green and pale axis, so although they're not necessarily associated with a specific number, the crowded tomb and empty gallows cards are associated with the pale, where endless woods and eternal mountain are associated with the natural themes of the green. I'm curious whether there are other themes to be discovered in a similar fashion. So related to that, I'd like to propose a theory. I've so far spoken only in terms of observable fact, but I have an idea that I want to run by you all. I'd really love to hear your feedback on this, and perhaps where else it might lead. I've been thinking about the themes of the four different families, secrets, mysteries, visions, and notions, and looking for some kind of pattern or understanding within them. Here's what I think this is. If you make a simple four-quadrant graph with two axes, on one axis you've got that which is known versus that which is hidden, the occulted versus the revealed. On the other axis, you've got that which is tangible versus that which is intangible. This is Certes versus Qualia stuff, that which you can see and experience with your physical senses versus that which you know through other means. And I think that the four families fall neatly into these categories. Secrets are things that are hidden from us, but intangible. They would require deeper senses than our purely physical senses to be able to reveal them or understand them. Mysteries are hidden to us, but they could be discovered in the physical. Visions are both revealed to us, but also still intangible. Even once known, they're not things you can grasp physically. And notions are things we have apprehended with our minds, with our senses. They are both revealed and tangible. I think the artwork in the cards really backs these up. Taken notions as one example. This is the revealed intangible. Frankly, to me, the most terrifying of the four sets of artwork. 
the sovereign of notions is the watcher. This is a scientist. This is a person who observes, catalogs, notes. The weak link in the notion stack is the forgotten prisoner, one who was known at one point and no longer is and still exists, but is rotting away. The style of the artwork is just rendered in this incredibly harsh light, uh, just a floodlight, exposing everything that a thing is in its physical form, sometimes very ugly. In the opposite corner, you've got secrets. These are things that are both hidden from us and also intangible. Were you to discover them, they would require something beyond physical senses. So take a look at these ideas, take a look at the artwork, the style of the artwork and the art direction, and also the themes represented, and see what you think. I would love to hear from you on Twitter about whether this holds any water. The next thing to think about beyond this, which I'm only just starting to, is the relationship between each of these, the artwork, the themes, and the four elements, wind, water, fire, earth. So take a look at those and let me know what you come up with. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed your stay at the secret cellar, and I hope you'll enjoy the rest of your time in the actuality. Stay safe and warm. It's a blustery night up there. If you see any wrong cats, alluring as they may be, don't pet them. Our last traveler made that mistake. Thanks once again to Gamers Giving, our sponsor for this episode. Learn how you can join and serve or donate at facebook.com slash gamersgiving. Do continue to let me know what you enjoy, what could be better, what topics you'd like to hear me explore. Write to me on Twitter at at underscore secret seller underscore. Super awkward. If you're enjoying what you hear, it would be a tremendous help if you'd take a moment and rate or review this episode on iTunes or wherever you find us. And if you're interested in advertising, write me at secretseller at zeros.bar. I'm booked about a month out at this point, but if you'd like to purchase a slot for the fall, you can do so for just $5. This is a great place to put your thing in front of smart, nerdy, delightful people. Audio design for The Secret Seller is by Casey Ross. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games, with whom Zeros.Bar and The Secret Seller are unaffiliated. May you find freedom, my friends, from Shadow. Shadow.